Hi everybody and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Great to be together with you again and I just want to thank you, particularly those of you who have been helping to promote the show, sending out uh, links to friends and talking to folks about it. Very much appreciate that and I can see the results. I know I'm a little obsessive about looking at the downloads but that's just how it is in the wonderful world of podcasting. I also want to spend just a moment telling you about a daily television show that Susan and I do. And here's the best thing about it. You don't even need to have cable television because you can watch it online any time you wish. How do you watch our daily TV show? Uh, well, you go to our website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and then on, on the main homepage of the website, you just scroll down a little bit till you come to television show, and you click on that, and you're taken right over to tct.tv, where you can look at the... Um, at the four or five shows we're broadcasting that week, and you can just pick whichever ones you want to watch. Uh, it's a 30-minute uh, show, and uh, in it's called Ancient Jewish Wisdom with Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and uh, it's, it's Susan and I, and, and the good thing about it, I think, is that it's not scripted. Uh, Susan and I know what we're talking about. We know what the topic is. We uh, we have determined the approach. We've determined which particular biblical uh, verses are applicable and how. Uh, but then from there, it's uh, come as it goes. <laughs> and and uh, every now and then we, we disagree and we hammer that out. But for the most part, it's all in uh, in good spirits and we try and provide um, a very real service there in, in in exposing you not only to a real-life question, but how it's tackled and uh, where, the, where the approach actually comes from. So it's called uh, Ancient Jewish Wisdom with Rabbi Daniel Lappin, but the easiest way to get to it is just to go to our website, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and uh, scroll down until you come to a television show, click on that, and you get right there. So at any rate... Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, you probably will also find the television show interesting. Now, uh, the other thing I have to tell you is that uh, today's show is actually a replay of one from before the 2016 election. Um, it was from the summertime, and uh, Susan and I were actually boating in uh, a small boat off the coast of British Columbia, and uh, we uh, had different ones of our children joining us from time to time. And then uh, I did the podcast from there. So uh, here is a show from that period. Uh, it's a time when uh, Obama is still in the, in the White House. And I interview a very interesting woman. She's a nurse in an intensive care unit in a big city hospital. And if you ever wondered why Obamacare was unsustainable, what it looks like from the front lines, and uh, the horrific circumstances that a uh, highly trained young nurse has to put up with because of illegal immigration and uh, and uh, the, 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 the cultural qualities that enable growing parts of America's population to use a, an emergency room at the hospital as the first recourse 
in the event of any kind of uh, medical issue of any kind at all. Anyway, she talks candidly. Uh, we conceal her identity, but uh, you will <laughs> very quickly realize that she knows what she's talking about. And then um, we're also going to talk about, <clears throat> on this show, uh, a number of things that I I, I I haven't gone back to and uh, I think that you'll find interesting um, the um, abortion of girls not only in China but uh, also in Manhattan, uh, the differences between um, lesbianism and homosexuality between women and men, and a uh, uh, number of other male-female issues that I don't get to very often. So it, it's it's one of it's one of the shows I'm most enthusiastic about, and I realize that many of you who've joined in the last few years would not have heard this show. So um, there it is, and one of the reasons I'm replaying it is because. <clears throat> On the day when I ordinarily would have prepared this podcast this week, we were busy uh, taping the television show. So um, that's why I mentioned the TV show. And so I thought I would give you this one. And I, I sure hope you, you like it. Uh, you know, if, if a whole lot of you say, oh, come on, stop feeding us all that old stuff, uh, then I don't know what will happen, but tell me if that's the case, and at least I'll know that, that that's something not should not happen again. At any rate, um, the uh, resource for this week that we're highlighting is called the uh, Genesis, the Biblical Blueprint Set. You'll see it at rabbidaniellappin.com, where you'll also be able to subscribe to our free weekly emails. You can also send an Ask the Rabbi question. Uh, the last Ask the Rabbi question actually was from a woman who is in the dating and she had some questions about men uh, that she's encountering. So that is up on the website in the Ask the Rabbi section, all at rabbidaniellappin.com. Okay, let's move right on with the show then, and uh, very much hoping you enjoy it. This is your rabbi thinking of you as we move into the show recorded actually on a boat in British or in the waters of British Columbia. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back, everybody. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. Thanks for listening to the show, and uh, we're delighted to be here on The Blaze, and I'm grateful to you for, for participating and for listening. And uh, who better than a rabbi to tell you about the things that never change? Because the more clear we all are upon those things that never change, the better equipped we are to deal with all the stuff that does change around us. And here is something that never changes. One of the things that never changes is that people do get sick, people want to be healthy, and that people need medical care. And... Uh, for this will be the last week of the podcast that is recorded on a small boat that my wife and I are navigating off coastal British Columbia. And one of the charming aspects, I mean, we love so much about this lifestyle, but uh, 
One of the great things we enjoy is that we pull into small harbors. Sometimes they're fishing villages. Sometimes they're small places that uh, that have economies based on lumber, lumber or tourism, but small places. And uh, you go up. Um, to and you know you find the, the 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 dock master and you pay a few dollars of dockage fee and then you go over to the the inevitable coffee shop that's at the end of the dock and it's it's never a name brand coffee shop and uh, you know who I mean I'm not going to mention them by name because they're not advertisers on our show so I'm not going to give them free advertising but no it's never any of those it's usually some local coffee so it's always a pleasure. And here's the best part. You run into people, and because it's a small village and because you've arrived by boat, people talk and people converse, and we invariably end up inviting people back to the boat uh, for a for a drink of something and then a chance to sit and talk. Well, one of the people that uh, I met this morning uh, was an absolutely charming young woman who works as a nurse. She's a very highly qualified nurse um, in and I, I'm I'm going to uh, give her um, a uh, I, I'm going to withhold information about her identity because I want her to be able to talk freely. But she's a nurse in a large American city hospital, and um, I'll just leave it at that. But she had so much to say. She was so fascinating in terms of the inside view of what really goes on. Is Obamacare working? Uh, is medicine getting better and better? Uh, is the illegal immigration policy of this country working really well? Uh, you know, when you are a nurse on the floor of a major hospital, I do believe you know more about what's going on than any doctor does. And uh, nurse Michelle Jeffries, RN, that means registered nurse, um, is living proof of that she <laughs> she knows so much and i thought to myself you know i've got a few minutes time with her before i go on and do the rest of this podcast and i thought this will be uh, fun to to chat with her for a few minutes and i know that it was something that uh, you would enjoy hearing about as well so um uh, first of all, then, Nurse Michelle, thank you for spending a little bit of time with me on our boat, and um, and I hope you're having a wonderful vacation as well. And let's let's start off with uh, the sort of wards you work on in this hospital, what sort of hours, and also a little bit about your training. Well, thank you for having me on your beautiful boat. This is very enjoyable. Um, I was trained. I have a four-year bachelor's degree. Um, and then I went back to school and I did a 15 month highly intensive, uh, program that graduated, uh, with a registered nurse degree and a bachelor's in nursing. So it's quite a bit of schooling I've had. Um, and I now work in a very busy city hospital, as you mentioned, um, on a very acute floor. So patients coming in from the emergency room, as soon as they're stabilized, are sent up to a floor like mine, the one that I work on. And um, and again, I will just uh, ask your forbearance, all of you, because uh, you will hear the noise of uh, boats puttering by, or uh, you might hear seagulls, or you might even hear the odd seaplane landing literally uh, outside the windows of our boat. So uh, uh, do do be aware of that, and uh, and and forgive us for that. But meanwhile. 
um, Nurse Michelle. Uh, I suppose I wanted to start off by um, by asking you this: Everybody, I, I've got to think you go into nursing with a with a with an, a certain aspect of um, altruism, a certain desire to do something meaningful and to make a difference and to help. And and certainly, you all the nurses I've ever met, and you are a, a glowing example of this. Uh, radiate a, a genuine care for for people. Um, who are uh, under their treatment. So I guess I want to ask you, are there any ways in which you've had cold water dashed in your face? Are there any ways in which uh, life now on the floor in your ward and you say to yourself, you know, this is not what I signed up for. This is this this is in there's a lot here that I don't like this. I never knew. I did not know that nursing would involve this. Or has everything been just as you expected? I wish I could say that everything's been as I expected, but I definitely went into nursing um, very bright-eyed and maybe with um, colored sunglasses on, uh, thinking that it would be a lot of, you know, just really caring for people who genuinely needed my help and making a difference to people who, you know, really had nowhere else to turn at some of the worst times of their lives. And you know, while there definitely are those moments, um, unfortunately, I would have to say they're rather few and far between. On a typical day, I have somewhere between six and seven patients. And I would say out of those patients, there's probably one or two of those patients who really need me and and are in the hospital for what I would call the right reasons. Um, I've come to, to realize over the, you know, five or so years that I've been in this hospital, it's a busy city hospital. Um, we care for a lot of different types of people. Uh, but a lot of the people coming in are um, drug seeking, which I, I, you know, you're not really supposed to say. Um, but I've had patients tell me, honestly, that they're there, you know, because they, they want painkillers. You know, patients are typically very honest with me. I have a good relationship with all my patients for the most part. And they'll tell you that they came in to get to get a certain type of drug. And the very honestly will tell me that if the doctor is not willing to prescribe them what they want, they'll simply turn around and come right back in the emergency room and go to a different floor where a different attending will be willing to prescribe them what they're looking for. And just listening to this, I mean, the cost, I don't know the exact cost of of what it costs a taxpayer every time a patient is admitted to an emergency room and then placed on a floor, but it cannot be cheap because um, they're billing them for every little thing. When the breakdown of the bill is, you know, putting in an IV is a certain bill and, you know, the changing of the sheets is a certain bill and hanging a bag of IV fluid is a few hundred dollars and they there's no even thought that about the cost they'll simply they'll tell me I'll go right back down to the emergency room or I'll go to a, one of the other numerous hospitals in the city um and that's just the reality I've I've met a lot of the patients are coming in like that with no really regard for how much it's going to cost and then you'll have patients who are coming in on their own private insurance and they are literally dying to get out of the hospital. I mean, they, they could be still very, very sick and they'll be begging us to discharge them because they know what kind of bill they're going to be racking up. Compared that with someone who knows that they won't be on the receiving end of the bill, uh, we've had patients stay for months at a time just because they don't want to leave. So let me, let me just try and uh, uh, drill down to what I, I think I'm hearing under the surface um, how, let me ask you this first of all. Um, 
I got to think that if I'm, uh, God forbid, if I have to be in a hospital, I've got to think that somebody like you must be a ray of sunshine. Um, You know, doctors have been in there. They've had their little meetings and their consultations. And then you come in and uh, you you talk to me like a human being and you make me feel better. I I think I would be overflowing with with gratitude toward you. So my question is, if this is if this is a fair question at all, could you say what percentage of your patients typically radiate uh, gratitude to you? And what percentage, if any, radiate a sense of entitlement, which usually comes with a sense of resentment and, um, and, and, a, and a sort of demanding attitude rather than a, a grateful attitude? I'd love to hear you on that. There are definitely patients who are very grateful, and those patients are lovely to take care of. You know, they really feel appreciative of all the help that they're getting, and they're grateful for the smallest thing. Um, but I would say that the majority of, of the patients that I take care of come in with a very um, large sense of entitlement and make it a lot more difficult to take care of them. But uh, a lot of them really are very entitled. We'll have, you know, patients demanding things. And, and that, I would say, is the biggest difference between what I expected coming out of nursing school and what the reality is because so much of my time that I I really need to take care of patients who are genuinely sick and need help is taken up by demands from patients who don't honestly need to be in the hospital in the first place. A lot of um, just time-consuming activities, things that they demand, there's no thank you, there's no please, uh, just a lot of of trivial matters that they they want dealt with, which um, comes with no manners or or anything at all. And really, it takes up a lot of time that I thought coming out of nursing school would be devoted to taking care of patients who who really need my help. Um, So as a nurse, uh, Nurse Michelle, do you know whether a patient in front of you has private insurance or whether this is a patient who walked through the door with, with no insurance, with no nothing at all, and as I understand it, legally, an emergency room has to take somebody regardless of whether they have any insurance, regardless of whether they have any money. But by the time a patient makes it to your floor, do you know who is an insurance patient and who's going to be paying for their stay and who is uh, an indigent patient who's going to walk out of the door uh, without having paid a penny or without any insurance that would cover any of the costs? Do you know? I do know, um, and I have to say that it wouldn't make a difference to me the way that I take care of them. I would take care of all my patients the same way, regardless of, of whether they're coming in with private insurance, whether they're paying out of pocket, because we do have those patients as well who are paying in cash, um, or patients who are coming in and being taken care of by taxpayer money. It wouldn't make a difference to me how I treat them at all, but I do notice a difference in the way that I get treated by those patients. And I do know, I do know, you know, how they're paying for their hospital stay or how they're not paying for their hospital stay. And just after, you know, a few years of being there, you kind of can notice a pattern. And I, and I don't treat them any differently, but I definitely get treated differently by them. Okay, tell me the truth now, Nurse Michelle. Have you ever had an Arab patient walk in with a suitcase of cash? Yes, I have. A few times, actually. Um, a few times. And Nailed that one, didn't I? Yes. Um, no, I, I, I've actually I, I had heard stories uh, like that, but I just didn't know how common they were. So it's actually happened to you more than once. Yes, yeah, a few times you'll have patients who come over for care, um, and they they generally come in with a big entourage, and they some suitcases full of cash for sure. 
Um, that's, now, what, what percentage of the patients you see typically, what percentage are patients who are going to pay, either through insurance or out of pocket or out of a suitcase of cash if they speak Arabic, um, or uh, and versus those who are uninsured, nothing, and, and I'll come to the illegal immigration question in just a moment. But right now, if you had a guess um, of your patients, what percentage of them are paying? What percentage of them are going to be covered by the taxpayer? Roughly, I mean, it, it's just a rough estimate here. I would say maybe 10 to 15 percent are paying with actual insurance that they pay for um, every month. And I would say the majority, vast majority of them are being paid for by um, taxpayer, taxpayer money. So you're saying as, as much as maybe 75, 80, 85 percent uh, of the patients you see at your hospital, which is a, a large, well-known hospital in a major American city, uh, as many of them, as many as 80%, maybe more, are not paying a thing and are going to be taken care of at the cost of the taxpayer. Yes. Um, folks, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a disturbing story, and there's even more, and I'm going to check to see if I can uh, have Nurse Michelle on for another session. Uh, but right now, quick break, and uh, uh, you are listening to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show on the Blaze. My website, youneedarabbi.com. Don't forget to go there and subscribe to my wee- free weekly email for tools, and uh, be sure to send me a note letting me know how you feel about the show. Uh, quick break, back for, in, for another segment in just a moment with Nurse Michelle Jeffries, a registered nurse with uh, an amazing story to tell. She's really held me quite breathless uh, since we started chatting together on this uh, little remote uh, outpost in British Columbia. Don't go away. Hi, everybody. Thank you for sticking with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show here on The Blaze. And um, I really enjoyed meeting the nurse and talking with her. And um, I've got uh, one more segment with her uh, coming up next. But uh, first of all, I wanted to let you know some of the results I had uh, to my question. I had asked you uh, to go to my website at youneedarabbi.com and to click on the Contact Us tab, uh, thereby enabling you to shoot me an email, which I promised you I would get. And I'd asked you specifically how comfortable you were with the um, with the format we're using here. Essentially, a two-hour format broken up into eight uh, close to 15-minute segments. So there's a lot of material, and it's it's fairly dense, and it's fairly long. But my assumption on a podcast is that you would interrupt it. You know, you wouldn't take it in one long uh, swallow. You'd break it down into smaller doses and take it as you felt like it, you know, while you were commuting or while you were exercising out at the gym or whenever else. Uh, listening would be a, a very good use of time. And I did get some responses, and um, they were gratifying. I'm going to share with you um, the response. I think this is all the responses I've got. I may be mistaken on that, but uh, it's certainly um, a good representation of them. So I'll just read them to you quickly. This is from Kyle, who writes, Thank you, Rabbi Lappin, for your wonderful podcast. I enjoy every minute of it, and I learn a great deal from it. You present your point of view so plainly and lay out your arguments so skillfully that I hardly 
suddenly realize that the podcast is almost two hours long. God bless you and keep up the good work. <laughs> and I wonder, um, again, if I, if I got any <laughs> really negative ones, frankly, I'd read those to you as well because, uh, uh, first of all, if, if they're just abusive, then I think they're funny, and you probably will too. I didn't get any abusive ones, but I, I sometimes get abusive mail after radio broadcasts. And uh, secondly, if, um, if if they're negative, I usually learn from them, and, uh, and I told you I did want to hear the truth of how you felt about it. So uh, uh, as it turns out, there are no real... Uh, compelling negative ones, but but uh, it's a mixed batch. Um, Pamela writes, I recently found out that you're doing a podcast on the Blaze Radio Network. I was thrilled to hear this and even more thrilled to listen to each and every one of them. I've been a long-time student of yours and have purchased every audio CD in your store. Uh, by the way, that would be our store at www.youneedarabbi.com. Uh, Pamela continues, I enjoy listening to them often as I travel back and forth to work. I wanted you to know that I enjoy your teaching so very much. I feel blessed beyond my worth to have a rabbi like you. Thank you so much. Look, uh, this stuff is uh, like massaging me with warm butter, you understand. This is not painful for me to read these at all. Um, here's Nancy who writes, just finished listening to the podcast today and heard your request for feedback on the length of the program. Uh, definitely not too long. I thoroughly enjoy listening and would be sad if you shortened it. You are one of my favorites. Thank you for all the time and effort you put into sharing your wisdom. And uh, as I said, that was Nancy. And uh, uh, here's Michael from Florida. Writes, enjoyed and learned from your podcast, Rabbi. Guess I'm a Catholic guy with my own rabbi. Perhaps this exists and I've missed it, but having a quick table of contents for what items you're covering that day helps me come back to it sometime in the future rather than have to sift through multiple shows. And, um, okay, that is that is a very, very good idea. And, Michael, I will tell you this, that if you go to soundcloud.com, soundcloud.com, search for Lappin, uh, you will get to my page where you will find all the uh, current podcasts up. Right now, they're what? I don't know, five, six, seven, something like that. And uh, each one does have a – it's not a table of contents, but it is a list of topics covered. But um, I will uh, try – I don't fully understand whether you mean you wanted a, a, a written table of contents or you wanted me to start off the podcast in segment one talking about – uh, the topics that will be covered in the rest of the, the podcast. I, I guess I could do that if it would be helpful, but um, that is uh, – I'm going to try and get some clarification. Maybe I'll, I'll email you back asking for clarification. But uh, Michael's a CEO of a company in uh, Palm Harbor, Florida. Um, Dawn lives in Hayward, California, writes, Just a quick note to let you know, I think the length of your podcast is perfect. I thoroughly enjoy listening and always look forward to the next one. Um, Okay, and I suppose you're getting completely fed up with this narcissistic self-indulgent exercise of me listening to people loving my work. Um, you can you can jump ahead uh, for a minute or two, and and that should take you safely past the remaining letters, each one of which I shall diligently and eloquently articulate in detail. 
Um, here is Mark from South Bend, Indiana. <clears throat> Dear Rabbi Lappin, I'm a huge fan of all aspects of The Blaze, and I was glad that you started doing a weekly podcast. You asked for comments on whether it could be shorter, and my vote would be yes. I think somewhat shorter would be better. The reason being is that about the same time your podcasts are available, the podcasts from other people are available as well. They come out at the same time. And um, that the, then there is the regular Saturday lineup on the Blaze Radio uh, starting from 6 a.m. until 6 p.m. And I try never to miss that. So you can see my weekends are pretty full. Regardless of what you decide to do, I will continue listening either way. Thank you. And that's from Mark in Indiana. Uh, thank you, Mark. That sounds like an awful lot of listening you're doing. And um, so uh, uh, based on, on the sort of responses I'm getting, I think I'm going to continue this format um, for another a month or two or thereabouts. And I think by that time, uh, I'll be able to get a very good sense of how it's working for me and how it's working for you. So I just don't want to be premature in making a change. I just want to keep it as it is for a little while until uh, I can see whether the numbers reflect satisfaction. And that's really the bottom line, isn't it? That's how I'm really going to be able to tell how things are. Um, uh, Thomas writes, I think the longer podcast length is perfect. You're able to really develop multiple topics and give them the time that they really deserve. This is quite a refreshing change from the typical attention deficit disorder culture we seem to have descended into. Keep up the great work. And that's Thomas. Thanks, Thomas. Appreciate that. And, and he's absolutely right. Uh, and this is evidenced by something I've mentioned in the podcast and in in, uh, before, which is that um, scenes in older Hollywood movies, if you go back to the black and white era, in fact, I mean, frankly, all the way up to about 1960, when, as you know, I believe many, many things changed. I think it was an epochal milestone in American history. Uh, but up to that point, scenes, when, in other words, the director would leave the camera running for sometimes two to three minutes uh, of a long, I mean, that was not an unusual scene length. Uh, today on both movies and television, scenes have dropped to about 15 seconds on average. And that this has an effect on uh, people's attention span, particularly young people, um, a great deal of whose intellectual, emotional, and mental development is shaped by uh, large hours, many, many hours they spend watching television or watching a television production on the Internet. It's pretty serious. Um, then we've got um, – I, I, that's that's pretty much it, actually, isn't it? I think that that takes care of uh, much of the feedback. Yeah, I, th I seem to think there was another bunch of it as well, but I will save you <laughs> the torment of more of that. But uh, as I said, you can be quite sure that I myself – uh, did read it all and uh, and enjoyed them all and uh, and took it all very much to heart and uh, uh, I uh, I have had other conversations uh, with um, Nurse Michelle and the the ones I um, I recorded and uh, and 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 I'm sharing with you on the podcast was the one you just heard in the last segment and uh, we're finishing off in the next segment basically dealing with very much the question of um, uh, basically what the healthcare business looks like to a professional insider and uh, I've I've spoken with with emergency room doctors and um, and I must say, in general, my impression is that if you really want to know what's going on in a hospital, you want to speak to the nurses. 
uh, and it's understandable, right? You know, doctors are, are seeing many, many, many patients, whereas uh, a nurse is dealing with, uh, you know, a floor or part of a floor. It might be six, seven, eight, nine, ten patients, depending. But she's also uh, eyes and ears. She's uh, she's there all the time. This nurse I was talking to um, in the earlier segment was uh, 12-hour shifts. Hard work, you know, on your feet for most of 12 hours and dealing with human beings who, even at their best, um, are not at their best, if you know what I mean. Uh, and then she's also, as she explained and will explain more, dealing with um, a part of America's population that represents a massive problem. And uh, whether they're illegal immigrants or not illegal immigrants, they are people who have not been acculturated into American values. Um, and these, these things are very noticeable. Um, in terms of sort of American values, uh, you know, don't play your music so loud that it impinges on the lives of the people near you, whether it's in your car with the windows rolled down or whether it's out of your uh, apartment window or whether it's from the uh, the boombox you're carrying on your shoulders, although nowadays most people are are beaming that audio directly into the ears with uh, with ear pods or earplugs and uh, but you know there would be some of it another one is uh, you you know you stop your your car at a crosswalk to let somebody a pedestrian over or maybe it's not even a crosswalk and the person saunters in in a very insolent fashion have you ever seen that uh, they're deliberately taking as long as they possibly can to walk across. Okay, that's not an old-time American value. American value is consideration, concern. You're living with other people, and you're part of a community of other people. And somebody stops you, you acknowledge their inconvenience on your part by uh, stepping to it, you know, moving right along and uh, striding across uh, to, the, to whatever extent you're, you're capable of doing so. Um, how's about pleases and thank yous, okay? Uh, acknowledgement, again, on the road. Uh, somebody lets you in uh, to a line you're merging in or somebody stops to let you turn into yeah, a wave of acknowledgement. These things lubricate human interaction, and uh, they make you feel warm and positive towards your fellow human beings, which is what makes things work better. And all of the, I mean, these things are terribly important. And, and these things are, that I've been talking about are the minor symptoms of it. On a far deeper level, uh, we have such things as uh, deferment of gratification. We have such things as self-discipline. We have such things as impulse control. These are part of the American values. And how do I, how do I mean this? Well, if you go back to the textbooks, that young students used to study in American schools. Uh, and I'm not talking, you don't have to go back as far as the Northwest Ordinance that, that sort of essentially set up a vision of public schools in America. Um, you don't have to go back as far as that. You can go back to the, the 50s and 40s and before that. You will see many, many, many American kids uh, grew up learning to read on the McGuffey Readers. And if you don't know what the McGuffey readers are, do yourself a favor. And when you have a few moments to reflect on life in America, where we've been and where we're headed, uh, go and look up the McGuffey readers. You'll be astounded that these constituted 
the major part of of uh, uh, teaching young students to read literature. Now, uh, the the way it's developed in public education today is that reading is just a technical skill, and there's no discussion, there's no thought given. And I've I've read some of the minutes of education uh, educators conferences where no thought whatsoever is given to the idea that uh, values are being transmitted as well as just the vocabulary and grammatical skills that come from learning to read properly. And so as a result, they've decided that uh, as long as the kids are reading, it doesn't matter what they read. And they give kids sheer garbage to read in schools today. The so-called adult, uh, young adult novels, um, they're horrible, horrible things. But um, uh, all of this is designed to... Um, uh, ultimately to change the value structure of America. And so the very concept of deferment of gratification, you don't do what you feel like. You control your impulses. You discipline yourself that you have to do your homework before you play, that work comes before leisure. These things that have made America and make any civilization function are absolutely crucial. And um, And whether or not a lot of people in a society is an asset or a drawback depends very much on whether the people have been, if you like, acculturated, acculturated to uh, Western civilization is what it's all about. Anyways, um, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, go back to uh, Nurse Michelle. I want you to hear another uh, quick and final segment on some of the things that she encounters. And then when we come back after her, there was a, another part of a conversation I had with her, and this had to do with, um, you know, she wa- wanted to get married and the kind of men she's meeting. And I decided to compile a list of things that women should know before they invest a single evening in dating a guy. There are certain things every woman should know about reading men. And uh, I am going to disclose this here. This is immensely valuable, so much so you should start thinking of me as the Mother Teresa of podcasting. I'm really going to be doing you a favor uh, coming up right after the next segment with Nurse Michelle. Stay tuned. We're back, everybody, and thank you again for being tuned to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show on the Blaze. I am very fortunate to have run into, as as we run into all kinds of people up here uh, cruising during the summer in British Columbia, Canada, uh, but we've run into a young woman, Nurse Michelle Jeffries, who works in a large city hospital in a large American city. And uh, because I've asked her to be very candid about what she encounters, I agreed to not disclose uh, the city or the name of the hospital she works in. But, um, again, thanks so much, Nurse Michelle. It's, it's been great getting to know you and spending some time with you here. And uh, in the last segment, uh, you, in almost in passing, you alluded to uh, constant trivial demands being made of you uh, by patients who are not paying whereas you, you indicated that those who have insurance, those who are paying, tended to be polite and grateful. Uh, you said you got a lot of trivial demands. You got a sense of entitlement, uh, rudeness from people who are, uh, who are going to be walking out and without paying a penny. What sort of things do you find going on? 
Well, I think that one thing is that when people are paying for their own insurance, they really they you understand the value of something when you pay for it. When you're given something for free, I feel like you you really don't understand the value of it, and that's in all facets of life. But it really has come across very clear to me in the hospital because I do find that that patients who are on their own insurance are very very aware of how much things are going to cost and the type of effort and work that the nurses and the doctors and all the staff put in for them because there there is a sense that they are paying for part of it and they tend to value what they're paying for and demand a certain level of value. But um, I have noticed that that they are quite happy with what with what they get. They're very understanding, very grateful, very appreciative. Um, when you're given everything for free and you have no, you don't need to have any concept of how much things cost and there's no concept of, of the value of what's being given to you, patients tend to get very demanding. And I have had patients who are in the hospital who on their, their own account, they will tell me that they don't really need to be there, um, that they've come in because they've run out of pain pills or they've come in because they need, you know, a place to, to stay for a few days. Um, they... Are tend to be more demanding, and and let me just clarify that I'm more than happy to do anything for my patients. But like I mentioned before, it's a very busy hospital. I have six or seven, sometimes eight patients on a very busy day. Um, a lot of them are very acute patients, very sick, and there's just no understanding um, that I'm that if you're busy with something else, it's unacceptable. And I, the demands can be as minute as you know helping them figure out what what channel of TV station, you know, they're looking for. They want their bed sheets changed twice a day, which I'm more than happy to do, you know, provided I have the time and provided another patient doesn't need me more at the moment. But there's just a very um, a strong feeling of, of entitlement and demanding and not understanding that there might be patients who are sicker than them or patients who need something more than they do or um, – that refilling their water jar might not be, you know, the, at the top of my priority list at this moment. You know, like I said, I'm more than happy to do it, provided that another patient doesn't need me more, that I have the time. But it, it can get very um, disheartening, and, and it can kind of it can kind of jade you a little bit when you're really doing your best and trying to take care of people to the best of your ability, and there's just no gratitude, and there's just a sense that, that you're just there to serve them and... and not understanding that that there's a value in a service being provided. Um, you um, uh, you are aware at the same time. Do you also have a sense and awareness of who is um, an illegal uh, immigrant? I mean, I'm quite sure you're dealing with a lot of people. Um, <laughs> the government euphemistically says of color. I'm sure you're dealing with a lot of people who are not born in the United States of America. Uh, do you have a sense of what proportion of the people you're dealing with are, um, are have no right to be in the country at all in the first place? Yeah, um, I, I am aware of it. A lot of patients are there for quite some time, and I do become friendly with them. And, and people discuss, people become, people disclose a lot to their nurses. You spend a lot of time with your patients. So, I yeah, I would say that I typically am aware of, of people who are not in the country as legal citizens. And again, an approximate percentage of all the patients you see, guess at an approximate percentage of people who are there and are illegal? It's a good question. Um, it would have to be a very rough estimate. I'd say um, on a weekly basis, if I'm working three 
you know, three 12-hour shifts a week, I'm running into two or three patients a week um, that are illegal immigrants, I would say. Um, now, you said something a little earlier that uh, that that went by me, and I've been thinking about it. Other, wait, wait a second. This is very, very hard. You, you spoke about patients who don't leave, patients who – I'm not sure I understand that. What I mean, what, what happens ordinarily in my experience is that the doctor says, well – you know, you're okay. Everything is good. You you'll be discharged this morning. Goodbye. Why? What do you mean when you say that there are patients who could be with you for a very long time and yet are not sick? What does that mean? Well, hospitals and the whole medical industry are very, very tightly controlled environments um, with a lot of rules and a lot of a lot of laws in place and legalities about how the rights of the patients. I would say there's a lot. Um, a lot of of paperwork, a lot of legislation, a lot of laws there to protect the patients, I would say. And one of the things, and I'm not precisely um, certain exactly why or which law in place um, stipulates this, but hospitals are not allowed to discharge patients in a way that would be considered a unsafe discharge. So if you have a patient come in who's homeless and they come in off the streets, you cannot then discharge them back to the streets. That would be considered an unsafe discharge. And the, the discharge process is very convoluted. It takes a lot of people. I mean, they're paying salaries for social workers and they're paying salaries for patient care coordinators to, to have the job of making sure that the patients are discharged somewhere safe. Um, we have patients coming in from shelters who will then refuse to go back to that shelter. And they will stay for sometimes weeks more at a time um, on the taxpayer's dollar. And then it's really just a hotel because they've been considered medically safe for discharge for a week or two at this point. And they're, you know, eating three meals a day and having their sheets changed daily and TV service and phone service. And they will stay until they agree that they are being discharged where they want to go because you also um, – Medicaid allows you to refuse your discharge. So if you are considered medically safe for discharge by the doctor, the patient has the right to then say, I don't consider myself safe for discharge. And they are then allowed to stay for an extra 24 hours at a minimum. Um, so if you decide you don't want to leave, that's one way not to leave. If you decide you don't want to leave because you don't want to go back to the shelter where you were um came in from. That's another way not to leave. And if you're homeless, you're definitely not leaving until we find somewhere for you to go that you also want to go to. And I think these laws were put in place with very positive intentions. I can completely understand why they were put into place. And um, it's to protect the patients, but it ends up really draining the system because people... People know how to use the laws to their advantage, and they're on a busy in a busy metropolitan hospital on a floor with fifty patients. Half of them could be just sitting there, totally healthy, taking up bed space from patients who really need the space because they don't feel like leaving. You mentioned um, while we were chatting earlier today. Uh, you mentioned the fact that uh, you get rated by the patients. And um, so give me some examples of that and, and how that works and, uh, and and ways in which you've been rated. Well, this is the part that I feel the most strongly about, and it's a part that's really just recently coming into play with um, the new medical system in this country. Um, 
but a lot of the hospital's reimbursement is now based upon patient satisfaction surveys. So the patients leave and they're surveyed about how satisfactory they found their stay in the hospital. And then those surveys are then collected and um, the hospital gets rated in different areas. And if we're not rated highly enough, we don't get reimbursed. Um, this is now the way that, that insurance is working in, in America. Um, it's part of the way that it works. So I've seen some of these surveys, and we go over them. Um, and some of the questions will be, did the nurses um, respond adequately to your pain? Um, did the nurses manage your pain appropriately? And like I mentioned before, I think this probably came from a very positive place of when patients are in pain, they need to be responded to adequately and appropriately and quickly. Um, you don't want anyone to be in pain. But it's really being taken advantage of right now because I, I've had patients who, there's only so much the nurse can do, right? The nurse isn't writing orders and the nurse isn't deciding on her own volition how many milligrams of morphine to give to somebody. But... Um, the nurse, once the order's in place, the nurse should then act quickly and give the patient the medication that's been ordered for them. So patients will tell me that I'm doing everything I can for them. They'll, they'll say, I know you're doing everything you can for me, but I didn't want morphine. I wanted Dilaudid. And I know when we get their surveys back, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be rated a zero on that. We get the majority of surveys we get, because we go over them every month, um, rate the nurses as zero in the area of pain control. And I think the question is written poorly. I think the idea of reimbursing hospitals based on what type of drugs we give out to patients is very, a very poor idea. But um, we end up, it feels useless kind of the work that I do because no matter how hard I work, if the patient wants 10 milligrams of, of morphine and I give them six, we're going to get rated very poorly. And I, I find that very, very disheartening. And, and I've had patients, you know, tell me straight to my face, I really like you, you're doing a great job, but no offense, I'm going to be complaining a lot about you because they get what, what they want when they complain because doctors tend to be very fearful of patients writing bad reports because a doctor that has a lot of patients complaining about them, um, you know, we don't get, you don't get reimbursed if, if patients are not happy. And instead of keeping patients healthy, I find that we're keeping patients happy. So they're happy and they could be dying, but uh, they're not healthy. And this is the way that the system is going. I've seen it changing a lot in the last few years compared to the years before that, I, that I've been working. In the last few years, it's, it's really a lot more about are the patients happy and getting what they want. Well, getting what you want isn't necessarily what you need especially when you're when you're very sick and that's been a disheartening a disheartening sight to see over the last few years gosh and is does the system feel sustainable to you nurse jeffries in other words do you look at it and say look you know for all its flaws it's kind of working and there's no reason why it can continue like this indefinitely um, you know, maybe we'll work some improvements along the way. It'll get a little better here, a little worse there. But basically, the system is sustainable. What, what is your feeling on that? It is or it isn't? I would say it definitely isn't. And I don't know what the solution is. I'm not a, a political professional or any kind of expert in, in policy or anything like that. Far from it. But I would definitely say that this is not sustainable. Um, you have a, a percentage of the population paying for other people in the population, which I understand is necessary because not, you know, you need to care for the poor of your society. But 
the system is being taken advantage of, and it's being taken advantage of to such an extent that there's no way it's sustainable. There's there's just not enough money. There's not enough resources, and I, frankly, the, the nurses are getting burnt out. I've seen doctors getting burnt out. It's just very difficult to take care of populations who you just feel are draining you, um, and it's so it's definitely not sustainable. Um, in closing, because I, I know you have a, your seaplane to, to jump into soon, um, the uh, sort of closing advice for anyone who's unfortunate enough to have to be in a hospital, what are the best tips you've got for somebody to um, have to sort of make their nurses happy and want to help them? Um, definitely. Definitely a, a good idea to make the nurse happy, but nurses are, are by by the most part, you know, for the mo- vast majority of nurses go into the profession because they really do care about people and they really want to take care of people, and they have good hearts and and nobody goes into it for the money or the hours because I can tell you that both of them is are not worth it. <laughs> um, but people go into it because they really want to take care of people, and if someone is you know really needs you and is. is is really sick then you know you'll have a chances are that nine times out of ten you'll have a really great nurse there to take care of you and nurses are really the backbone of the whole medical system i mean i would say that the doctor spends maybe at a maximum 15 minutes of the day with the patient because they've got a lot of patients to see and that's just the way the system works but your nurse is with you for 12 and a half hours a day so they're really the ones uh, who are noticing things going wrong first and they're they're the final gatekeeper for your medications and noticing medication errors that are sometimes you know ordered the wrong dose and the nurse will be the one to catch it and and so I would definitely say that, that nurses are the the real backbone of the hospital and not so much advice for patients coming in, but advice for policymakers and for the country in general is they're really going to have a, a hard time retaining good nurses if this system keeps up because it's it's very, very draining. Um, it's very draining for, for nurses, and it's something that I know a lot of my coworkers feel as well. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's been real fun talking with you, and uh, thank you for spending a little time with our listeners on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Much appreciated. Uh, travel safely, and uh, God bless you. Take care of yourself. Uh, folks, we'll go to a quick break, and uh, we'll pick up with the show in just a few minutes. In, in, excuse me, in just a few moments. We're back. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And uh, one thing on uh, one thing about the way the world really works that never changes is uh, understanding male-female relationships. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, if you undertook, let's say you're raising children, if you undertook as a parent to teach them only three things really, really well you will have fulfilled every possible obligation as a parent. And after that, the author, the, the ballet lessons and the uh, karate lessons and the uh, extra, to, and the extra um, uh, classes in uh, remedial breathing are all completely uh, jam on the bread. The three things, the three areas you have to thoroughly and completely make sure your children understand, money, what it is, its spiritual dimensions, where it comes from, uh, everything about money. Number two, everything about male-female relationships. 
And number three, everything about faith in God. Cover that and you're done. And so a very important one-third of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin syllabus for effective childhood education um, is uh, male-female relationships. And so what are some of the things that um, are so necessary and so important? And I'm going to be sounding fairly negative about guys, single guys, in this uh, in this segment. But um, please don't see that as in any way uh, derogatory because I like guys. I am one. As a matter of fact, I, I'll probably have to do a sort of corrective segment showing you just how much I think of men. But um, right now I am talking about women and single men, and uh, I'm talking about uh, particularly single women who are dating. And you see, here's the trouble. Uh, I talk to a lot of these women, and uh, interestingly enough, it's, it, it can really jaundice you against men. Uh, I will tell you that um, there is a, a large category. I don't have numbers, okay? To some extent, this is anecdotal, but I talk to a lot of people, and uh, when people come up to me after appearances or lectures, I promise you, I'm always available. I'm very often, and uh, to the chagrin of my wife or my handlers or the people who, who are sort of have the obligation to get me to wherever i got to be next. I'm very often literally the last person to leave an auditorium where I've appeared or to leave a church where I've spoken because I hate missing an opportunity to talk with anybody who wants to talk to me. I talk to a lot of people. And uh, I will tell you that uh, I'm absolutely convinced that there is a large segment of women who um, become what they think of as lesbians. Now, uh, in reality, there is almost no relationship between uh, lesbianism and homosexuality. This uh, I don't want to devote uh, right now this this uh, uh, segment to that particular topic, so I won't dive into that at length. But if you think about that, essentially uh, the the absence of penetration is an absolutely crucial dimension. Number one, number two. Uh, there is also a crucial aspect to the, the sort of temporariness of things. And what I mean by that is that I do believe, and if you just look at the large number of women, many, including many celebrities, by the way, who are notable lesbians, they come out and, yes, they like women, and then they, they shock everyone and disappoint their former uh, teammates by getting married to a man. It happens all the time. There's even a category called lesbians until graduation, lugs. Doesn't surprise me, doesn't, doesn't puzzle me, doesn't baffle me in any way at all. Uh, women are so badly treated on the campus. And, and yes, women allow themselves to be abominably abused on the campus. Yes, uh, the hookup culture is real. It's alive. Uh, the Tinder culture. Right? And if you don't know what Tinder is, you are leading an enviably sheltered lifestyle. Uh, the, uh, all of these things have contributed to the extent to which women are abused and to which women uh, allow themselves to be abused. No question about it. Let's not, uh, let's not uh, ignore the culpability that rests upon women in this area. Bottom line is it makes absolute sense to me that so many women – uh, just decide to have nothing to do with men uh, anymore. And then what happens is they graduate, they get away from the toxic 
campus culture and they get into the real world and they start meeting men who uh, are holding down jobs and uh, achieve it and who are performing and all of a sudden they discover hey you know these aren't the retarded adolescents we've known for the last four years they're actually real men here and then all of a sudden uh, the lesbianism is forgotten and and that's I, I've not yet heard of male homosexuals until graduation but I have encountered many lesbians until graduation so uh, all of that uh, to explain why it is that uh, that this particular segment is devoted to women who have dealt and are dealing with more than their fair share of uh, adolescence. And by the way, male adolescence has nothing to do with age. Male adolescence, I've met 40-year-old male adolescents. I really have. And this is one of the reasons that almost every culture has an initiation process for men, not for women. Even Judaism has bar mitzvahs. And, and because we're dead scared of explaining to young girls, hey, you know what? Boys and girls are different. There's a reason boys have bar mitzvahs. Uh, bar mitzvahs are not occasions of lavish and extravagant gifts or life-size effigies carved of the 13-year-old pimply adolescent uh, in chopped liver. No, a bar mitzvah is supposed to be a very serious spiritual kick in the pants um, that'll jar him all the way up his spine to his head that will help to dislodge him from the seductive world of adolescence and turn him into an adult. That's what a bar mitzvah is supposed to be. And whether it's an initiation rite of the Maasai tribesmen in Kenya or of Arabs or of uh, um, Native American Indians or, as we say up here in British Columbia, Canada, First Nations, uh, whoever it is, they always had these initiation rites for men, not for women. Does that ever surprise you? Like, what happened? Oh, they're just patriarchal, masculine-dominated societies. They decided not to share this wonderful thing. Look, uh, most guys who go through a real initiation rite would happily have forgone it, right? Excepting, as I say, in contemporary American Judaism, the bar mitzvah has become an outrageous and extravagant opportunity for parents to show off to their friends and... Uh, for the young man to uh, flaunt uh, the absolutely nothing that is achieved and his appalling ignorance of the world and everything to do with it. 13-year-old boys are, <laughs> are not supposed to be celebrated. I mean, all they've done is stay alive, and even that is more a tribute to them, their parents than themselves. Uh, no, it's meant to be a very serious uh, process, and in many parts of, uh, of Judaism, again, it's a minority of the American Jewish population, but in some parts... Uh, notably the parts that take uh, the Torah more seriously, uh, it is not just a party. It is uh, a serious spiritual encounter that does leave the young man significantly altered uh, for the better. But uh, um, without any form, without any process that converts a young male into an adult male, he will remain an adolescent. And, of course, in modern American culture, where the university is no longer a place to prepare for life, but it is a place to continue partying, and, in fact, uh, there are universities that uh, recruit on their reputation as party schools, all we're doing is uh, really destroying American masculinity and, in the process, profoundly imperiling the future of the United States of America. And... Uh, and so, 
you women out there, and I've given you ample time to make sure that young women in your life or any women seeking marriage have uh, been able to get hold of this podcast or are able to listen now. Um, I will again stress that I, I certainly don't, I'm not disrespecting males in general here. Uh, remember, I am one. But um, my instincts lean towards protecting females. That's not just because I'm fortunately blessed with six wonderful daughters, uh, some of whom uh, have had uh, the opportunity of sharing time with Susan and me on our uh, boating trip in British Columbia. But um, it's also because that's part of Western civilization. When uh, ferries are imperiled in the Bay of Bengal, nobody ever hears women and children first. Again, I, I want you to understand that when men went down with the Titanic after making sure that women and children were in the lifeboats first, please don't think that's a universal human instinct. It isn't. It belongs exclusively to Western civilization, Western civilization based as it is on the Bible. Separate discussion. If that sounds shocking and outrageous to you, uh, then we need to make sure you hear the podcast devoted to the linkage between Western civilization and and the Bible. But um, uh, when I say that uh, my instincts lean towards protecting females, that's not just as a father, but it is as uh, somebody who believes in Western civilization as being the only form of civilization on the planet. Oh, cultures? Sure, hundreds of cultures, but uh, civilizations, that's the one. And so, uh, Guys in general have to learn to take it on the chin, and uh, and so, gentlemen, here it comes. Uh, I do get consulted very often uh, by young women who are in the process of, of meeting a potential spouse. And, um, and again, this is not due to any inherent skills or any prophetic insight uh, I may or may not possess. No, uh, this is only because I uh, am a teacher of ancient Jewish wisdom, and um, that is what equips me to help young women have the right questions and understand those answers. So let me give you, um, let me give you um, three quick examples of the kind of questions that, as a young woman, you want to ask a guy long before you waste six months of your life going out with him, long before that. Um, and so a very early one is, uh, so what sort of work do you do? The answer, well, well, uh, well, um, well, okay, interpretation, are you ready? Any response starting with the word well means unemployed, okay? When a guy is asked, so what sort of work do you do? And he doesn't immediately launch into an enthusiastic and passionate sounding explanation of what he's doing. He's probably unemployed, so be very cautious of any answer that begins with the word, well, and by the way, you'll hear it in television as well. You hear politicians being asked something by, uh, by, a, news, by a television uh, pundit or anchor or commentator or interviewer, and the politician begins his answer with the word, well, be very cautious with such an answer because, well, basically <laughs> means I need time to think. Okay, here's a second question. Question number two, are you ready? How close are you to your family? How close are you to your family? 
Okay, if you hear an answer that sounds anything like this, it's trouble. Are you ready? Here's the wrong answer you're going to hear from many guys. How close are you to your family? My mother suffers from depression. My dad has always been a workaholic. My sister has issues. So, da-da-da-da-da. You know what the interpretation is? I'm an egotistical and insufferable idiot. So, be cautious of guys who's who every member of their family has a problem, except the guy you're talking to. He's the perfect, watch out for those. So if somebody is incapable of talking positively about his parents and about his siblings, don't walk, run to get away. It's not worth a waste of time. Are there exceptions to this rule? Uh, yes, uh, probably uh, 0.001% are exceptions. And it's nobody you're likely to meet, so just treat this as a rule, please. Uh, third question. How do you feel about God and faith? Look, I don't care what your position on God and faith is, but you'd be crazy not to ask that question. Okay, I'm speaking to women. Uh, and uh, here's the answer you've got to be aware of. The answer that says, I've always felt that religion was an intensely personal matter, da-da-da-da-da, etc., etc. I've always felt that religion was a personal matter. Okay, what that means is, I will fake an interest in God to retain your interest in me. You get the idea, right? And um, the very biggest question of all, the, the, the real issue that you need to know, apart from these three, the biggest one. Uh, that'll be coming up in the very next segment. Meanwhile, please visit my website. It's the place where you can subscribe to my free weekly emails, Thought Tools. It's the place where, yes, you can write to me, and I value that very much. I cherish all the responses I get. And it's also the place that you can explore my store for further resources in which I delve far more deeply into many of the topics I discuss on the podcast, but in a way far more uh, profoundly than it's possible to do on a public uh, podcast. So, for instance, talking about men and women, uh, a very crucial resource I produce is something called Madam I Am Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. And uh, that you can explore, read more about, or even hear a little bit about on the website. Go to the store at youneedarabbi.com or rabbidaniellappin.com. A quick pause, and when we come back, the 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 last really big issue that uh, any woman would be crazy not to explore and uh, be very careful of with any man she's considering spending any time with at all. Be right back. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you on the uh, Blaze the Podcast, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. My solemn mission... Uh, revealing how the world really works. And uh, we're talking about the way the world really works, particularly in the area of male-female relationships. And in the previous segment, I discussed three important questions that any woman contemplating spending any time with a man I'm not talking about, heaven forbid, six months of your life. I'm talking about uh, more than one date, frankly. And so uh, uh, I've covered those three, but, but here is really one of the biggest. 
okay? And that is a man who has not yet um, cut the ties with his mother. Look, any guy who is still tied to his mother in a particular way that I'll try and explain is somebody who is no way ready to form a tie with you. And so you really need to understand what the nature is of his relationship to his mother. If it is a relationship of emotional and needy dependence, and yes, there are men like that. And he will uh, he will reveal it by uh, using almost childhood uh, terminology as he relates or, t- or talks about his mom. And of course you should ask him about his mom. Of course you should try and delve and dig because it's in talking about his mother that he's going to reveal so much about himself. And so uh, what you want to find out very much, uh, very, very clearly, is the extent to which he remains um, emotionally needy in terms of his mom. Is his mom still supplying uh, some of what every child needs, which is a, a sense of, of love and a sense of connection and a sense of belonging and a sense of groundedness and, and a sense of uh, um, a place to call home, as it were, all of which is obviously not meant to exclude a close and re- loving relationship with his mother, very positive. But I'm talking about something else, and you'll recognize it when you see it, once you've been alerted to it and you know what it is, which is um, a, um, uh, a, a less healthy dependence on his mom. What am I talking about, and, and where does this derive from? Like, like everything else I've been telling you about, it's uh, from ancient Jewish wisdom, which has been the, the subject of my obsession for my entire life. And... Uh, or at least to date, I should say. And uh, I will um, I will tell you actually the actual verse because it's fairly well known. It's the final verse. It's the final verse in chapter 2 of Genesis. No, it's not. It's the second final verse. And it's, uh, therefore, a man must leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Okay, now, sequence in the Hebrew Scripture is very important. It's really very important indeed. So I want you to notice two aspects of the sequencing, and there's many more to talk about, but this is the kind of thing I would cover in much greater detail in the resources on my website than I feel is appropriate to do on the podcast. But enough information to help you through the topic we're, we're discussing in the segment uh, is definitely something I am going to include. And so uh, the second last verse of chapter 2 in Genesis, therefore shall a man leave, okay, who? His mother and his father or his father and his mother? Not sure? Check the text. And he shall cleave to his wife, and then they shall become one flesh. Um, in case the... Uh, the, the 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 language didn't immediately clarify itself to you. They become one flesh means sex, sexual intimacy, physical intimacy, right? So that's at the end of the process. I'm just saying. Now, 
Let's take a look at that sequence. Therefore, you know, God is really laying out here and, um, and, and whether, again, for, for many of you and I, I, I fully understand and appreciate it. For many of you, the source of the information I impart is utterly and completely irrelevant. So bear with me a little bit because I know there are many people for whom the biblical and ancient Jewish wisdom origin of a lot of this stuff is, uh, is not only interesting but also valuable and perhaps makes the information more useful and more valuable. And so, um, first of all, it's, so what we've got now is a description of a, uh, of a an, an incipient embryonic relationship, and it says that before there can be any cleaving to his wife, and before certainly before there can be any sexual contact or connection, um, there first of all has to be a leaving. The man has to leave his father and his mother. Okay. First question is now: Why do you suppose there is not a parallel? Right in this podcast, I said that uh, there is technically, in 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 reality, there is no bat mitzvah. It's a uh, an artificial creation on the part of parents and congregations and rabbis and synagogues who are just scared of telling young children the truth, which is young ladies don't need a bat mitzvah or an initiation to adulthood any more than an NFL player who has not had his arm broken, needs a cast. You do not put plaster casts on the limbs of people who haven't broken them. You do not put initiation rites on people who don't need them. You see, ever since they were little girls, my daughters were looking at bridal magazines. My daughters were like three, four, five, six years old, nine years old, ten years old. The house was littered with bridal magazines. It's a miracle I didn't break one of my limbs, slipping and sliding down the hallway on a carpet of bridal magazines and pictures. Now, do you think my son ever looked at a bridal magazine? I doubt that he has to this day. Guys do not think of marriage. Girls start almost at birth. Not quite, but almost. And so little girls envisage weddings. They do. They love weddings. They love attending weddings. Little girls envisage their own wedding. And they see the staircase they'll walk down. And they'll see that their their wedding dress in enormous detail, by the way. And next to them, they'll see a tuxedo, a very smart tuxedo, with an oval hole where the face goes. They don't actually see the face, other than the fact that they know he's good-looking. But everything else about the marriage is there. It's very important to young women, very important. To guys, a whole lot less so. And so guys have to be initiated to move towards marriage. There has to be an acculturation because ordinarily it's not going to happen at all. It just doesn't, and the evidence is take a look around you. Take a look at what we euphemistically call the inner city, you know, a, a dysfunctional part of America, which has nothing whatsoever to do with color, by the way, and I've covered that extensively in the past. Uh, the, uh, the, the dysfunctionality there is basically family shattering, and the culprit, not color, government, of course, because they have interfered with the economic dimension of family. 
And when the government interferes with the economic dimension of anything, chaos and confusion are inevitably the result, let alone after chaos and confusion comes absolute calamity. And so um, in, uh, in, in reality, for a, a young man to, to, to move towards marriage, which is absolutely essential, he's got to have the impetus. But the obstacle, he hasn't yet left his father and his mother. What does that mean? What do you think leaving your father is? The answer, economic dependence. That's what that means. Ancient Jewish wisdom explains that, um, therefore, shall a man leave his father, he must acquire economic independence. Look, ladies, this seems to be almost so obvious it barely uh, needs saying. But if the guy has not yet acquired any form of economic independence or is demonstrably on the path to that, you know, let's imagine that uh, he's in his last year of apprenticeship as a uh, machine tool operator. And uh, and so right now he's making very little money, but guess what? Next year he's going to be doing very well indeed. Uh, or a, a guy is um, in his last year of college not taking middle period Etruscan pottery as a major, but he's taking uh, science, engineering, mathematics, technology, computer topics, things that at the present time in the American economy actually offer a potential of a job. Uh, and, you know, so right now he's a student, no problem. But somebody who has no economic independence plus no plan, and not just a plan because a plan is indistinguishable from a daydream if it doesn't have a schedule attached, nothing, no plan, no schedule for achieving economic independence. Move on, ladies. Don't run, don't walk, run, get away, waste the time. Therefore shall a man leave his father. Yes, he has to leave the sense of economic dependence. And by the way, most women don't have the faintest idea of how utterly traumatic that can be for men. Talk to guys about it. If, if you're on a date and you're short of conversational material, say to the guy, uh, tell me about what it was like to when you first got that feeling that you're going to need to find a way of making money in your life. You know, because up till then, your dad took care of everything. What was it like? And most men, most good men, will tell you with with total um, recall, because most guys do remember that moment, that period, that, it, and sometimes over the course of weeks or a couple of months where it begins to dawn on us, wait a second, we've got to do it ourselves. And, uh, and, and. Most honest guy will, guys will recount it. <laughs> You'll almost see the terror in their eyes as they relive those traumatic moments. It's um, That is what leaving the father means in the second last verse in the second book of Genesis. And then after that, he's got to leave his mom. That's the next thing. What is that about? Okay, well, remember I said earlier that we do not find a parallel verse that says, and by the way, therefore shall a woman leave her father and her mother. Doesn't say that. Have you wondered why? 
Why does the second last verse of chapter 2 of Genesis just say, therefore shall a a man leave his father and his mother, then he'll be ready to cleave to a wife? How come it doesn't say, and therefore a woman must leave her father and her mother, and then she'll be ready to cleave to her husband? Reason? Like I said, because women are born ready to leave their fathers and mothers and cleave to their husbands. That's why in Western civilization, women take and embrace the names of their husbands. They they are delighted to become a Mrs. Jones, even if their original name was Felicity Winterbottom. They're absolutely delighted to become Mrs. Timothy Jones and to renounce the uh, Felicity Winterbottom name. Sometimes they'll be Mrs. Felicity Jones. But um, bottom line is women are by nature ready to embrace a man. Uh, and this is why it is that on the high street of streets of uh, so many small American towns that, that still retain a link to the past, you will see many, many, many storefronts that say Brown and Son, you know, or Smith and Son, or uh, Greengrocers, uh, uh, you know, Jeffries and Son, whatever it is, or Sons. And you'll find uh, uh, publishing companies. Uh, a company that I've been um, associated with um, is John Wiley and Sons. It was a New York publishing house. Um, how often do you find a company name that says, you know, so-and-so and daughter or so-and-so and daughters? Almost never. Why is that? Well, let me explain that as soon as we come back in the next segment. You wait right there. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reminds you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And foremost among those things that never change are male-female relationships. And uh, that's what we're talking about. And um, uh, I was reminiscing with you on journeys, road trips through the heartland of America. How often you find businesses named, uh, you know, Smith and Sons or uh, Thompson and Son or Jones and Son. Uh, but you will drive many, many miles before you see any storefront uh, labeled uh, Jones and Daughter uh, or uh, Thomas and Daughters. Very, very rare. Why? Well, it's obvious. The reason is that uh, Mr. Jones's daughters are now married to somebody else's family. And so their involvement in a business would more than likely be in the business to, into which the family in which they marry to is involved, not their father's. That's the way of the world. That's how God created men and women, or for those of you who prefer, that's how men and women evolved through a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution. So uh, bottom line is either way, whichever whichever way it is, the, uh, the, the reality of it is that women uh, don't need to be taught, acculturated, uh, initiated into leaving the families into which they were born, and embracing husbands and the husbands' families. Um, we, we do it, they do it all the time. And, uh, and that is um, 
I mean, there, there's so many indications, so many pieces of evidence that, that illustrate this intrinsic reality. And so on the general rule that uh, in the Torah, there are no directives for things that we would do automatically. Uh, almost every directive is for something that goes against our natures, against our instincts, things that are difficult to do. Uh, for instance, there's no rule at all in the five books of Moses that says Jews please be sure to eat three solid meals a day. I'm, your, I'm the Lord your God, and I direct you. You must eat three solid meals a day. You don't have to do that because other than in oppressive times and in periods of terrible oppression, uh, Jews can be counted upon to eat three solid meals a day. Under normal, happy, healthy circumstances, malnutrition, not a big problem among American Jews. And so uh, anything that is told as an instruction in the Torah uh, is something that uh, doesn't come simple. For women, leaving their fathers and their mothers uh, is, is relatively easy and straightforward. It's not a big traumatic thing. But for men, it can be massively traumatic. Therefore, shall a man leave his father? That's right. Financial independence. Make no mistake about it. It is difficult. And, you know, boys can sometimes be four, five, six, seven years old. I mean, I'm talking about before adolescence, uh, before puberty, when they realize that they're going to have to do this. Very often, for most men, it is early. that Young guys realize that uh, financial reality is important and that uh, they have to do it on their own. It's very difficult. Sometimes, sometimes fathers even have to be a, a tad cruel. They have to sometimes say to their sons, well, that's it. This is as far as it goes. Um, you're going to be on half uh, from here onwards, or you can you can stay with us, but you're going to have to pay rent. It's going to be less than market rate. But um, And sometimes you have to do that because it's kicking the fledgling out of the nest. And I have watched, because of some of these wonderful video cameras that have been placed by various nature organizations at nests, uh, I've actually had the, the, the thrill of watching on video as mother birds actually nudge their fledglings out of the nest and force them to take those few first frightening moments into flight. And... Um, uh, during uh, the um, the uh, the Lappin annual family boating trip, which which is is coming to an end, so uh, soon you will no longer be uh, tormented by inadequate audio quality and uh, noises on the outside, like uh, seagulls and other things. But uh, we've actually seen a number. I mean, uh, we've been very fortunate. We've seen a lot of seals, mums and pups. That's what you call baby seals or pups. And uh, we've actually seen the mother seal sort of teaching the baby seal how to go about things. And she's also got to, got to in, and they do it instinctively, of course, but teaching the baby seal uh, with a combination of uh, sort of maternal compassion, but also a desire for the, the offspring to achieve uh, independence because that way they, is the only hope they have of uh, surviving and not becoming uh, the uh, prey of predators like orcas, killer whales, and all of that sort of goes on around here. But parents sometimes have to do that. And it's particularly it falls to fathers with their sons. And so that is um, an absolute requirement. 
where um, the father has to make sure that his son leaves him in that sense. Obviously, there's no departure of, uh, you know, it's not, it's not an ending of the relationship or anything, but it's specifically financial. And guess what? Susan Lappin is waving her arms at me in the saloon of this boat here, which n- n- normally I can record the podcast in solitude in the studio. But uh, over here, we are close together, which frankly is, is part of what we love about this trip and uh, I think it's wonderful for our marriage. Yes, uh, Susan. Ah, Susan says she hears a contradiction. Um, she hear, I, what I thought she, as soon as she said contradiction, I thought she was going to say that uh, it's mother seals and mother birds. Oh, that's true. And what I'm talking about is is fathers and sons. And the answer to that obviously is straightforward, which she knew as well as I do, which is it's one of the very big differences between animals and human beings. Uh, the role of the father in human beings is unique. Um, the role of the father in animals is, is quite different. It's fleeting. And, um, and in fact, the, the father seal is nowhere to be seen in, in these uh, British Columbia scenarios that we're enjoying. And uh, the father bird is, is not involved in teaching the fledglings, but it is the father human who is teaching his sons to achieve financial independence. The contradiction Susan spotted was that I spoke about uh, storefronts. You know that were uh, Davidson and Son, um, and so you know where is the economic independence there? Well, look, uh, it's a wonderful thing to be able to work in your father's business. It's a wonderful thing to be part of that business, and uh, for the business to be strong enough and viable enough, and to provide an exciting enough economic environment uh, for a son. Uh, uh, to uh, for a son to go ahead and stretch his wings in that sense, and uh, and it's it's not a contradiction because uh, everybody knows that as wonderful as it is to work for your father, it also is very difficult. And uh, I've often said that uh, working for the worst father is better than worst working for the best stranger. And that's you know that's an aphorism of mine, but uh, it's obviously not true a hundred percent of the time. Uh, there are wonderful things about being able to work for a father and to work in a family business, but uh, they are very tough things as well. Uh, I have counseled and do counsel many smaller companies uh, on succession issues, how to make certain that um, that strong entrepreneurial founders are able to convey responsibility and independence to their sons. Because, uh, guys, if, if you're in a business like that and your son or sons are working in your business, um, if, if you do not allow them enough independence to stretch their wings and to do their thing, even though it's going to end up uh, moving the company in a direction different from your visions, uh, it's not going to endure. And so that's that's a whole different topic, and it's a, it's a very real one. But um, but a great deal of genuine wisdom is needed for father son businesses to thrive. Uh, the wisdom is needed on the part of the father primarily, um, and on the part of the son, patience and humility. Um, you know, you may you may realize or may see that your dad is not proficient in uh, Instagram, Pictogram, Periscope, and uh, everything else in social media? Possibly not. 
But um, if he's got a thriving business that he's built up, maybe from what he got from his father, who knows? Your grandfather may have started the business. And if so, you're very fortunate. Uh, And you have to realize that although your father may well lack certain uh, modern technological familiarities, at the same time, he obviously understands how the world really works uh, because he's running and built a successful business from before you were born. Um, Is there a legitimate role for you to take it into new and vitally important directions? Obviously. But it's got to be coupled with um, humility and patience. And on the part of the, the father, there, you know, you've got a good son, And by the way, what many fathers wisely do, and I recommend it in many cases, not all, but many, is that before you bring your son into your business, uh, you have him work for somebody else. Have him experience working for somebody who's not related to him. And only after he's acquired some of that experience does he then come into your business. I think that's important in the majority of cases. But, um, but of course, for you, the tough thing is now being willing to relinquish some control, relinquish some autonomy, because uh, you don't really want a son who's nothing but an order taker. Uh, you don't want a son who, who has no entrepreneurial zealousness at all. So you're going to have to stand by and let him do things. And you are probably going to also have to let him make mistakes. And you have to remember that unsolicited advice is almost never welcome. These are all things that uh, you need to do. At any rate, back to the second last verse of chapter 2 in Genesis. Therefore shall a man leave his father, we've covered that, and his mother. All right, we understand that uh, the financial independence must come first. The emotional independence from his mother has to come a little bit after that. Um, there are men who, uh, who don't break free. Of their mothers, and I, I don't mean that derogatively. I don't mean that mothers have become uh, these cartoonish, uh, freakish caricatures of mothers. No, not at all. Um, there are people whose mothers still there are adults whose mothers haunt them in a way, and um, who will sit in chairs at uh, $150 an hour, uh, uh, counselors, psychologists, and so on. And they talk about their mothers on and on and on and on. They talk about their mothers and how they, what their mothers did to them and the things their mothers did that made them the way they are. Trust me, if the guy you're dating, ma'am, is uh, spending a lot of money at a therapist talking about his mom, you need to run in the other direction as hard and as quickly as you can, for sure. Uh, that's a definite indication that he, this man has not yet left his mother as to whether he left his father. That's a separate topic we've discussed. But right now, uh, a man must uh, leave his mother, and only after that can he cleave to a wife. Only after that is he ready for marriage. And only after all of that will it make sense for them to become one flesh. There's a lot of material. Ancient Jewish wisdom devotes an enormous amount of material to um, what it means for a man to be ready for marriage. Much, much less on what it means for a woman to be ready for marriage because she's almost always ready for marriage. Almost always. I'll tell you that uh, uh, with a great deal of marital counseling and premarital counseling, I've got to tell you, I can't think of too many cases 
I, I think maybe one or two come to mind. But there really are not a lot of cases where guys tell me, you know, we've been dating for uh, four months, five months. I really want to start moving towards marriage now. But she's not interested in marriage. How many times do you think that happens, right? Hardly ever. But overwhelmingly, 99.9% of the cases I've been involved in, it's the woman saying, you know what, we, we've been dating for four months, five months, six months. Tragically, there have been cases where they say be for two years, which should never be allowed to happen. Uh, and every time I bring up marriage, he, uh, he, he gets unhappy. He says, I'm pressuring. Um, you know, it's, I get it all the time. Women say, you know, um, I, I, I can't help it. I see uh, couples out with a baby, and I, I, I'm drawn to the baby. And, uh, and, and, the, and, and John or this guy I'm dating doesn't want it, and he sort of gets uncomfortable when I, I cuddle the baby. Yeah, of course he gets uncomfortable because he has no interest in getting married. You know why? Because he hasn't yet left his father or his mother. But um, that then becomes really one of the most important things, ladies. In addition to the three questions I told you to ask in the last segment, make absolutely sure that you explore the extent to which he has fulfilled the second last verse in chapter 2 of Genesis. Has he left his father and has he left his mother? My website again, youneedarabbi.com or rabbidaniellappin.com takes you to the same place. Love to see you there, love to hear from you, and uh, above all, love it that you're listening to this podcast. Let me know, will you? Let me know who you are. Let me know what you think. And uh, do that by hitting the Contact Us tab at rabbidaniellappin.com. A quick pause and then back, and I'm going to tell you, I told you earlier, this isn't an attack on men. I'm going to tell you some of the great things about men, okay? That coming right up here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Stay tuned. Reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. Yes, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, thanking you so much for being part of this podcast. I watch the download numbers avidly, uh, almost obsessively, some might say, but uh, I have no other way of, uh, of, of knowing whether my work is effective. Uh, you know, one of the stories um, on which I was raised by my teachers of ancient Jewish wisdom was the, the man imprisoned in a dungeon, and uh, he found a crank protruding through the uh, stone wall of his dungeon, and he started turning it, and uh, he turned it and turned it, and he once asked the jailer, uh, what what is the crank attached to? And uh, the jailer said, well, it goes through the wall to the other side, and there's a playground there, and as you turn the crank, it turns a merry-go-round and a Ferris wheel, and uh, uh, your cranking powers up toys, these these uh, fun games that little kids ride, and he says, if, if you could, but here, through the thick stone walls, you'd hear their laughter and their joy. Well, year after year, the man turned that crank from the moment he woke up until the time he went to sleep at night. And then there was a change of uh, of guard. And uh, a new head of the prison took over and new new dungeon directors and <laughs> new jailers. And, and they told him something else. And they said they laughed at him. And they said, uh, we don't know what you were told, but uh, that crank goes nowhere. It's just it ends on the other side of the wall. <laughs> You're doing absolutely nothing at all. And the man just dropped dead. 
Um, the, the, the disappointment was too unbearable. Look, we, we need, all of us, we need for our work to be meaningful. And when I say all of us, I'm going to be very honest with you and very candid, even if it means being politically incorrect, because you do not need me to uh, affirm untruths. Uh, and that is that this is very different for men and for women. Uh, men who are engaged in no work at all or meaningless work uh, suffer terribly and and become uh, less men. Uh, the same is simply not true for women. It isn't. And uh, that would be a different topic for another time. But for right now, if, if in any way you doubt what your rabbi has just said, then I urge you to study some of the freely available medical figures on sexual dysfunction linked to economic stress uh, for men and for women. Totally different. There could not be a more different set of statistics. In other words, uh, you know, put it briefly and effectively, men who lose their jobs take a beating in the bedroom. Men who lose their jobs become, in many, many, many cases, uh, well, less men in, in, in its most brutal context. And uh, women who lose their jobs, zero effect. And if anything, and this may be a statistical anomaly, although I don't think it is, in in uh, in some studies actually show a slight improvement in sexual health on the part of women who lose their jobs. So um, please don't let people tell you nonsense and don't buy into the stuff just because it's politically acceptable because that's a cowardly way of going through life. The truth, even if uh, difficult to swallow, is far more useful at any rate. And my goal is to be useful to you above all. And um, so uh, men and women, yeah, yeah, men absolutely need meaning in their work. And look, everybody, I mean, w women certainly also enjoy doing meaningful work. There's no question about it. Um, people become nurses like the nurse I interviewed. Uh, become nurses largely because they want to do something meaningful. Got it. Okay. But um, let me talk a little bit about men now. When uh, I spoke in earlier segments about things women should look out for, beware when they're meeting single men, uh, you know, it sounded a bit as if I was really down on men. That's obviously not true. Uh, I love women, uh, particularly the, the seven um, to whom I'm related, um, my, my wife and six smart daughters, beautiful daughters. Oh, and again, look, there's pluses and minuses of doing the podcast aboard the motor vessel journey uh, in the pristine and beautiful waters of British Columbia. One of them is that Susan, we spend a lot of time together when we're on the boating trip and when our children are with us. And, and that's wonderful. It's, uh, it's, it's absolutely fabulous. But Susan did just interrupt there by saying that I should also include uh, granddaughters. Okay, fine. But... Um, uh, yeah, look, I love women, and um, and I'll tell you something else. I don't care whether they are wives and mothers or whether they are plumbers or politicians, um, and, uh, and I'll tell you that cities that have well-dressed women on the streets 
uh, whether it's lunchtime or in the mornings or shopping, whatever it is. But that's a different sort of city. And I'll tell you that in the Soviet Union, you never saw attractive, well-dressed women on the downtown streets of Moscow or St. Petersburg or anywhere. It never happened. Uh, you don't see it in uh, in Cuba. And I will tell you that one of the very promising things about China, promising things, or if if you are worried about Chinese ascendancy in the world, one of the very disturbing things about China is the very large number of well-dressed, attractive Chinese women you do see on the streets. It's a very positive thing, and there's no question that it adds a healthy sense of well-being. And so, uh, yes, I love women, and I do consider them to be full and vital partners in any civilized society. Yeah, partners with men, of course. And um, and so with, with that as a sort of uh, caveat and uh, disclaimer, uh, I want to reveal a timeless truth and a permanent principle uh, without arousing fiendish feminists into a frenzy of fanaticism, okay? Let me say it. I'll say it once and I'll say it clearly skyscrapers, highways, oil refineries, sewage treatment plants, power stations, bridges, and yes, all the other necessities of civilized life exist. You know why? Because men built them. That's right. I don't mean that men designed them and engineered them and found financing for them, although that is also mostly true. I mean that men blast boulders out of the way of highways. They pour foundations on freezing cold mornings for skyscrapers. They weld steel structures in scorching heat. They climb hundreds of feet up in the air on flimsy scaffolding, swaying in the wind. They dive deep under the surface of the sea in order to seal up oil wells. They build and test engines and turbines producing ear-splitting noise and so on and so on and so on for all the other crucial activities that attract almost no women. Hey, understandably, that's fine. I'm not one of those people, oh, why do these fields not attract women? It's perfectly obvious. It's not hard for me to understand at all. I'm not bothered by it. And frankly, I wouldn't advise any young women asking my opinion um, to go into deep sea diving. I wouldn't, for obvious reasons. Um, there is a, um, a remarkable woman. I, I find her, almost everything she writes, to be interesting, well-read, well-thought-out. Her name is Professor Camille Paglia. And I may be pronouncing the last name incorrectly. Do you know, Susan? I'm not sure if the G is sounded or not, but I sounded P-A-G-L-I-A, Camille Paglia. Here's something she wrote, and it's so, it's so eloquent and, and incisive. Here, she is, here's, here are her words. Um, if civilization had been left in female hands, we would still be living in grass huts. <laughs> um, and Camille Paglia is not, you know, she's not a, a, a conservative, or if anything, I think she's probably on the liberal side of things, but she's truthful. And that is so much more important than where you stand in politics. Be truthful. If civilization had been left in female hands, we would still be living in grass huts. 
To quote another woman who in this case is uh, certainly was known as, as on the conservative side of the political spectrum. She was actually a libertarian. Uh, she was raised by Jewish communists. And so in the spirit of rebelling against her parents, which all uh, young, many young people do, um, she um, became uh, a conservative. And anyone who's never read Atlas Shrugged, for instance, is, is really missing out on something. Uh, to get really excited about it and to sort of see it as the Bible of life, you have to be a teenager for that. But uh, never to have read the book at all leaves you uh, undereducated. The book Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, and um, she has in Atlas Shrugged the successful industrialist Hank Reardon uh, says the following, Dagny, there's another G in the middle of a word, that, uh, but I'm pretty sure that one is not silence. Danny? No, I don't think so. Uh, Hank Reardon, uh, what was that? Oh, uh, Susan Loft. Uh, Hank Reardon in Atlas Shrugged, uh, has, da- has, uh, Hank Reardon saying, sorry, muddle up word there. Anyway, here's what, uh, Hank Reardon says. Dagny, whatever else we are, it's we who move the world, and it's we who will pull it through. Right? And, um, and so, I mean, no thoughtful or fair-minded woman will argue with anything that I've said, um, so far in this segment. As a matter of fact, I think I'm not pushing it too far if I say that most women are moved by men who move the world. I think most women are moved by men of ambition, men of achievement, and it doesn't mean you have to be an artificial superhero from Atlas Shrugged like Hank Reardon, but uh, men of ambition, men who have a plan for success and who follow the plan, uh, men who have a vision of what they are doing with their lives, I think those men um, move women. So it's worth um, it, it's worth recognizing that um, uh, that that the word man um, actually means something. Masculinity means something, and uh, it's it's a massive problem. I think massive problem for uh, American society, and this would be true for any society. A massive problem where uh, men are no longer men, and and we've we've done this to ourselves. We've done it uh, by the abandonment of Judeo-Christian values. We have left men with no guidance whatsoever, and by a society in a thrall to the doctrines of secular fundamentalism, uh, the utter obliteration of values such as postponement and deferment of gratification and impulse control, uh, we've produced eternal adolescence. And I'm speaking about men, because it's when men lose their masculinity, when men stop being men, that uh, the, the society of which they're a part becomes seriously imperiled, seriously imperiled. The, um, something that began about 30 years ago in many countries, many countries around the world, uh, was the um, sex and gender selection of babies. Now, this had been happening in one way or another, uh, for for years, feminists around the world were horrified when, in the seventies, they began to discover that in Asian countries it was frighteningly common 
for um, infanticide to take place. Female babies, female babies were killed. And later on, as technologies became available, uh, abortions were disproportionately performed on female babies. Uh, I was very friendly with uh, an OBGYN doctor on the west side of Los Angeles whose, uh, whose practice was almost exclusively well-heeled women of the Beverly Hills, uh, Westwood, Santa Monica, parts of West Los Angeles, most of them professional women, and he assured me most of the women who would think of themselves as feminists. He did many, many abortions until he discovered that the figures revealed that the majority of abortions he was being asked to do was on female fetuses. And that's when he began to question everything. And uh, around about this time, he was also finding faith and becoming attached to God in a personal relationship as a practicing uh, Torah-observant Jew. And uh, he stopped the abortion side of his practice, terminated it. Uh, To much anger and hostility, I must tell you, both within the profession uh, in the hospitals that he was um, licensed to work in and uh, and among his uh, his patients very very much hostility um, on this on on this front there's a little bit more about uh, the topic of uh, men and uh, and abortions that I want to wrap up on and we'll do that just as soon as we get back here on the rabbi Daniel Lappin show hold on just a moment here I come Revealing how the world really works, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And uh, yes, about 30 years ago, uh, it became evident that uh, nations in Asia uh, were aborting a disproportionate number of female fetuses and in many cases were actually uh, committing infanticide, again, disproportionately on on girls. Why is that? Something I touched on just a little bit earlier in the show was that uh, there are many storefronts around American towns that still show that sons join their father's businesses, but not daughters. Daughters go into another person's family. And so uh, to many of these cultures, not based on Judeo-Christian principles, where the role of women, even daughters, that are going to join someone else's family, are a vital part of your life, that vision is not there. And so daughters are worth less in parts of Africa and parts of Asia because sons become part of your social security system. Daughters become part of someone else's. And particularly in Asian countries that imposed one-child rules, uh, punished draconian penalties and punished with, with, uh, I mean, just sheer brutality. Uh, In cases like that, if couples were being allowed only to have and raise one child, uh, they wanted it to be a man. They wanted it to be a boy child. And um, very, very bad things happen. One of the results of that is that uh, there is actually now a girl shortage in some Asian countries. And that means that very large numbers, particularly in, and you're talking about, you know, India, over a billion people, that's a thousand million. In America, the population is 300 million. In Canada, it's a tenth of that, about 35 million. Um, Japan, 125 million. But India and China are both over a thousand million. 
Okay, and so gender disproportions become very serious, and it means hundreds of thousands. No, I'm not sure the figure is hundreds of thousands. I, uh, I'm not going to give the actual number, but very large numbers of men are destined to never get married. Very big problem. Traditionally, a problem like this is solved by uh, going to war because typically in war, you are trying to improve yourself economically and sexually. You're trying to get women and economic resources. That is what war brings, at least when successfully uh, executed. And so um, we certainly ought to be aware of latent uh, social disquiet in uh, country, cultures and countries that have a, a very real female shortage. In a Judeo-Christian tradition, we, uh, we welcome daughters just as much as sons. And while, yes, it obviously is true that sons do remain uh, part of your family in a way differently from daughters, as a matter of fact, in, uh, in Judaic principles, in ancient Jewish wisdom, a husband, a man, uh, is obligated without end to um, respect of his mother and his father. And it's not just a, a sort of emotion. It, it, it comes along with very practical implications of things that a man needs to do for his father or his mother, even if he's married. But a woman, a woman's obligations to her parents once she's married diminish. They change. Now, it is true, of course, most women will feel a closeness to their daughters, even after their daughters get married, uh, that they don't feel to their sons. It's a very different thing. But in spite of that, in spite of that emotional connection, it is a, uh, a very real thing that your daughters do become part of someone else's family. They don't retain the same relationship with your family that your sons do. Nonetheless, they are of equivalent value. Why? Because it builds connections to other families. Your closeness to other families in, is enhanced, and that's what builds community. And with community comes connection and communication and collaboration and cooperation and ultimately creativity on an economic level. And I can only tell you that in the Jewish community, I couldn't even begin to count the number of instances I'm aware of in which um, a, a person's business dramatically grew because of a relationship with the family into which his daughter married, a family he didn't know before until his daughter met the young man, and then the parents met the parents, and closeness and friendship uh, developed. And out of that flowed real significance. It's an important thing. Um, I'll also want to point out, and again, if you don't mind, back to uh, ancient Jewish wisdom here, <clears throat> when I want to point out that, um, interestingly enough, in the Bible, God provides no information. I'm talking about the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Zero information on the ingredients that went into making the sun and the moon or the stars or from what God built camels and cows and kangaroos and cats. But uh, he does specify the material from which he constructed the human being. It was earth. Isn't that interesting? Right? Nothing else. In no, nothing else does God give the recipe or the ingredients only for human beings. And this link between human beings and the earth 
um, has um, has significance not just in burial, you know, from the earth we come, to the earth we return. No, not just that, but um, early scholars of many parts of Western civilization retained this concept of a human earth link by deriving the word human directly from the Latin word for earth, which is humus, H-U-M-U-S. So in Hebrew, a human is an Adam, and the word for earth is Adama, ground. And so Adam came from Adama, or human came from humus. And so we've got the Spanish word for man is hombre, and again, listen to the word. You know, you know the MB connections. Hombre is H and M are the uh, are the uh, operative consonants in that word, retaining that link to humus, the HM connection once again. Um, if a man is a real man, then he's not arrogant and high and mighty. A real man is a down to earth man, is he not? He is seen as a humble human or a humble hombre, right? Uh, what happens if you bring somebody too much down to earth? That would be called humiliating him, humiliating him. And once again, it's putting him down, too far down. Uh, if you put him even further down, you kill him, and that's called homicide. Again, human, HM, humus, earth, uh, and you put him in the ground. How about if you take a victim of a homicide out of the ground for a medical examination? You exhume him. And all of this flows from the Lord's language, which is Hebrew, that links uh, Adam and Adama, as I said, found in the first few chapters of Scripture. And uh, it, it just becomes really important to understand that uh, what we're being told here is the importance of, well, let me let me put it this way. There's one more distinction between animals and humans, and that is, it says explicitly that uh, uh, that that God breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and of course, uh, lions and llamas also have life to them, and they breathe and they have lungs. But nowhere does it say that God breathed this breath of life. The breath of God's spiritual vitality um, sort of exerts a subconscious pull in us towards heaven um, in, in, in much the same way that if you sometimes see at parties where kids are given helium balloons after a little while some little kid loses the grip on the string and that helium uh, balloon um, once it is no longer tethered uh, floats off up into the atmosphere and eventually bursts as the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the air pressure diminishes and the balloon swells finally bursts and falls to earth but uh, we human beings also have an ability to lose contact with earth if we're not tethered to reality if we're not constantly reminded that we are of the earth we have the ability of sort of losing touch with reality have you ever seen academics have you ever encountered professors or people who operate on such an intellectual uh, area and sometimes begin to take inordinate pride in being super intellectuals, have you ever noticed that sometimes they're unbelievably stupid in the ways of the world? That's right. Uh, there's such a thing as uh, being too lofty and floating away like that balloon until you burst. Uh, real men are constantly reminded that we are of the earth. Yes, of course it's important that we remember that we're imbued with a pull towards our Creator. But that can 
also be problematic if it's not matched by a parallel and equal connection with reality. And that's why you'll sometimes hear uh, expressions, and they're complementary expressions, when people will say about a guy, oh, he's got his feet on the ground. That's a good thing. What they're saying is he's not like that helium balloon. Or they'll say about a woman, she's so down to earth. It's a good thing. It's wonderful. I mean, who wants to have a wife who's not down to earth? Right? Wife who's not down to earth can't budget, doesn't under, I, I don't even have to spell it out for you. It's so obvious. These people remember that they are of the earth. And, uh, and that is why it is that whether you are looking to hire a person in your, uh, in your business or whether you are a woman who is looking to get married and this sort of takes us full circle, uh, one of the things you want to know is whether the candidate is down to earth and has his feet on the ground. And again, and this sort of ends the advice to women of this podcast if you are dating a man who's not down to earth, if you're dating a man who is, and again, um, overly intellectual, not connected to, the, to reality, not of the earth, please run for your life. And, um, and uh, talking of being down to earth, uh, I really I, I want to... Uh, tip my kippah, as it were, to uh, Pittsburgh Steelers linebacker James Harrison. Okay, you know what he's done? His kids got a participation award, <laughs> and he handed it back. He said, no way. I, I was so impressed. He said he was taking away the participation trophies awarded to his six- and eight-year-old kids until they actually earn a real trophy. He says, I'm not about to raise two boys to be men by making them believe they are entitled to something just because they tried their best. Uh, that is a great example of a man who is tied to the earth, who's tied to reality, has his feet on the ground. Yeah, there's the stupid participation awards. Have you heard about them? Um, where uh, in spite of the fact that life isn't always fair and in spite of the fact that you can work your hardest and do your best and expand every ounce of energy, the fact is that sometimes things just don't work out the way you hoped or imagined. It's the way the world really works. But somewhere in the misguided way that American culture has evolved, they've got the notion that kids have to be raised in a, uh, a, a cocoon of unreality. And there's no hardships and no heartbreaks and you get a trophy for everything for just being you. It's terrible. Absolutely horrible. And so what happens is that um, sports teams for kids have no losers. Right? The winners get a winning trophy and the others get an equally nice same size trophy, by the way. It's called a participation trophy. That's another example of being disconnected from reality, not being a real hombre, not being a real man tremendously damaging tremendously destructive and uh, everything that here on this podcast that i your radio rabbi rabbi daniel lapin am privileged to try and combat and to try and present you with all the intellectual ammunition possible in order to defeat this uh, growing tendency in the world in which we live value you very much appreciate you listening to the show uh, visit my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. And yes, 
Go forth and have a prosperous and healthy week. God bless. Till next time.